This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome back to the Knowledge of Wharton podcast. I'm Rachel Kipp, Associate Editorial Director of the Knowledge of Wharton website. Today we're going to discuss the impact of analytics on the legal field. With us is Raghu Iyengar, who's a Wharton marketing professor and also faculty director of Wharton Customer Analytics. Also joining us is Dave Walton. He's chair of Cozen O'Connor's Cyber Solutions and Data Strategies Group. Dave, thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me. And Raghu, welcome back. Thank you, Rachel. So one thing I realized while prepping for this is that the legal field is sort of this layer that lays on top of just about anything we can imagine, which I would think creates a lot of analytics challenges. So Dave, could you talk a little bit about what some of the major challenges with analytics and big data that are being faced by the legal field? Yeah, I think the legal field is still in its infancy on analytics and big data. Um, I first started writing about it back in 2013 about the potential impact of big data on the legal field. I got into big data because my wife's been battling some of uh, health issues. And so uh, I started learning about analytics and then um, started thinking, oh, this could have a big impact on big data, but our clients are doing it. We're not doing it. And so we're still trying to figure it out. And there's still a lot of you know, consternation in some corners about really what is analytics? What does it mean to be a lawyer? See, the lawyers had these ideas that, well, my brain was trained, my judgment is everything, my personal experience is everything, uh, there's no way a computer could ever do my job. And that's, and that's what they um, mistake analytics and AI for. Uh, and they don't understand that it's, a lot of lawyers understand it's using data to supplement your, your judgment, your experience in your decision-making process, and perhaps seeing things that you wouldn't otherwise see because you have access to um, data analytics and uh, data expertise. I imagine there's both client and non-client facing impacts here because not only from a lawyer's perspective do you have to think about it in terms of doing your job and how could it enhance your job, but also you have a lot of clients who are you who are creating these immense data footprints that they weren't creating even maybe even five years ago. Absolutely. And clients are a ahead of us in terms of using data. And now they are looking at law firms to say, how are you going to use your data to better provide services to me? But there's, but there's an internal tension there because a lot of law firms were still billing in the billable hour. So there isn't necessarily an incentive to be efficient economically. Clients are now pushing that incentive to, the, to us uh, making us do alternative fee agreements, making us do other types of non-hourly based fee agreements where the use of analytics can really help internally. On externally, you're starting to see some movement on how to use public availability uh, data in combination with client data, in combination with law firm data, on more of the predictive analytics. You know, can you predict the outcome of a lawsuit based upon a data? I think a lot of people would say you're crazy for you know even thinking that's possible, but I think there's opportunities to use all different types of, of data sources, of, but most of which are public, uh, to potentially create or to use predictive analytics in a way that enhances a lawyer's ability to predict not only the outcome of the case, but what it's going to cost and how long it's going to take to resolve. And Riku, from Wharton Customer Analytics perspective, and I think, Dave, you're a graduate of the program, right? Yes, I am. 
So from the perspective of the Wharton program, I mean, what sorts of things in terms of legal concerns, I mean, not just for people in the program who are thinking of or in the legal field or going to go back to the legal field, but just in terms of, I mean, I think often like when we talk about analytics, maybe legal is something, the legal aspect is something that people don't always think about, but at the same time, it's something that's incredibly important. Absolutely. Uh, first, I think I'd like to acknowledge a lot of the things about legal analytics. I actually learned from Dave's writings. <laughs> so thank you, Dave. Um, and I think, you know, what he brings up in his writings are lots of these issues, both internally and externally. And regardless if you're a law firm or you're a firm which is working with big data, kind of thinking carefully about what might be the implications in terms of hiring, for example. You know, what data are you using for customer hiring? Uh, what data are you using for targeting customers, for instance? Uh, where is that data residing? Uh, who has access to that data? I think these are key questions, whether you are, you know, kind of a legal firm or whether you're using analytics for many different purposes, you have to answer them. And now the question for many of these companies is, what are the legalities around it? And as Dave mentioned before, many of these things are in flux. For instance, uh, more recently, we had California passing out a law which basically said that there are certain things that uh, companies which are residing in California could do with their customer data. A big question for these companies is, you know, are the customers residing in California? Uh, what can, where should their data be? Uh, should it be present only in California? All of this is in flux. Well, and that was one thing I found interesting. I think you mentioned in one of some of the materials I read is that, you know, data has made us probably more global than we've ever been before, and yet there are no global regulations on data. Yeah. And so you often have multiple different types of regulations clashing with each other. So what do we do about that? I mean, that kind of shows the crossover in the different spaces that we're talking about here, because then you're talking about data crosses over into privacy law, into cybersecurity mm -hmm. law, and it's balkanized, and it's always going to be balkanized. I don't think you're going to have a global uh, data law even people look at the GDPR. Well, the G mm -hmm. GDPR is not a monolithic law. There's, you know, every participating state still has to adopt their version of what the GDPR regs are. And there's, and there's uh, differences, and it's hard to navigate. And then you get in Africa, and you get in Asia, and you get into other parts of the world, South America, um, and it becomes very difficult. But, you know, part, you know, part of the problem that lawyers have, too, is we have, most people may not realize this or believe this, very strong ethical guidelines. And a lot of that revolves around client confidentiality. Mm -hmm. Sometimes clients don't let the public know that they're being sued, e even though that's publicly available. And so when, when we have data and say, for example, and, th and this is something that I spoke with Roy Gu about is a lot, is that 99.9% .9 of lawsuits settle. I'm talking of civil lawsuits, not of criminal, okay? They don't go to trial, okay? So where is the outcome data? Mm -hmm. What the case resolved for? How much did it cost to get to that resolution point, okay? Who has that data? It's not reported in the public. In fact, it's subject to a confidentiality agreement and a settlement agreement. But my holy grail and something I would love to to develop would be a predictive application using analytics that would help use that data. But then how we as lawyers, how do we anonymize that data mm -hmm. or de-identify it in a way that we can preserve our client's confidentiality? And then there's a whole question about whose data is it? Right. Mm -hmm. If there's an outcome, is that the client's data? Is that our data too, if we de-identify it or we anonymize it? You know, is there a way to use that data 
within the constraints not only of our legal obligations, but our ethical obligations as well. And I'd imagine that this is almost like an increasingly difficult question just because anonymity seems to be on everybody's tongue these days when it comes to data. I mean, we're all concerned about, well, if they're using my data, do they know it's me? How are they using my data? How can I find out how they're using my data, which I imagine would compound the problem? Yes. And, 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 and it's a shame because the power of legal analytics, I think, is immense. And people don't understand how potentially powerful it can be if used in the right way. Mm-hmm. But we're all fumbling around kind of our ethical obligations and our legal obligations in terms of what we can do. Because lawyers are risk adverse to begin with anyways. I mean, I'm a little bit different. I'm more of an entrepreneurial guy. Our CEO, Michael Heller, is an entrepreneurial guy. But law lawyers aren't like that. We're taught to evaluate risk and to uh, guide our clients on risk. So we become risk adverse because we see risk in everything. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and so you get paid to. Yeah, exactly. And so and so when you're dealing with legal analytics, it's risky because you don't want to violate your ethical duties and have an accidental client disclosure, which is a breach of a settlement exactly. agreement on a case. But if you just took that out of the equation for a minute, you just took those concerns out of the equation and you could come up with data on outcomes on case outcomes for different types of civil cases, the the power that you could do with that data is immense. And it's and we have the technology to do it. Mm-hmm. But Palantir can take all the different buckets of data that the uh, military creates and put them on one platform and then be able to predict with 80% accuracy where the next ID was going to be placed in Afghanistan and Iraq. You could take those similar types of buckets of data from the legal, and you're not going to... A- ever able to predict something with 100% certainty. But if you get up into the 80% certainty and and you're predicting the time it's going to take and you're predicting the cost it's going to take and you're predicting what the potential value is of the case, we, we have all the data streams to do that. It's just trying to navigate and get that data in one place. Sure. And then from the Rotten Customer Linux perspective, Ragu, I mean, what kind of things do you guys deal with or see out there in terms of like these data sets like he's talking about that are kind of hard to get your hands around because ownership is not clear, anonymity is not clear, how they can be used is not clear, whether they're even public is not clear. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think that's a very good point and, uh, that they brought up. Um, there are lots and lots of questions in terms of anonymity. Let's start with that. Um, and there have been you know, lots of publicized, in some sense, failures. For example, the Netflix challenge uh, had come up a few years ago. And the problem with that was, and just to kind of make sure people understand what the challenge was, it was that Netflix was releasing, re- releasing anonymized data where you had to predict people's ratings. And so somebody out there took that data and merged it with IMDb ratings data and tried to figure out who these people were. And so, uh, not surprisingly, Netflix decided to stop that challenge, but that was a debacle that they didn't want. And similarly, there have been many other cases as well. So thinking carefully about not just the type of data you're collecting, but how people can perhaps put different data streams together, something that companies may not have thought about, something that might be available out there, but it doesn't reside within the company, how they can be merged together to de-anonymize has become an increasingly big problem. So thinking carefully about different streams of data, what can people do with it, how can people in some sense de-anonymize their customers, it's going to be a big challenge. The other issue, of course, is thinking carefully about what are some things that you should do with the data and what you shouldn't do with the data. In some sense, again, going back to what was brought up, the ethical guidelines. And so there have been some cases where companies, for example, have been a little too proactive. Uh, The target example is a big one. Uh, where They have been proactive in terms of using the data to do predictive analytics and how much of it are customers kind of looking to gain from it. And where is the fine line? 
uh, between, in some sense, using that data proactively versus, quote unquote, creeping out the customer. Right. Well, and I think some of what you're talking about, about in terms of comparing settlements and seeing and comparing lawyers to some extent, I mean, you also get into questions of kind of how you're assessing people and, and yes. HR questions, which I think a lot of times we don't realize that when we enter into a job or we apply, even when we apply for one, we're entering into a legal relationship with a company. So how does that play into it? What you're starting to see with our clients do is take the work that Angela Duckworth did with GRIT and start to develop kind of GRIT algorithms mm -hmm. or GRIT uh, tests and because you used to say, okay, if a kid went to an Ivy League school, they must be smart, and they must, and there, and therefore, that's going to increase their their chance of being successful. So I'll go for like an Ivy League brand or something like that. Now it's like, well, it's not just it's not just your education; it's your emotional intelligence, and we've learned all about emotional, and that feeds in to grit, you know, and into your ability to persevere through long term challenges. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I think law firms are going to do, and they're going to do. In the um, in the in the future, but there's a fundamental a fundamental barrier to law and innovation, which would include analytics, is that we're a professional services organization. A professional services organization, um, we have a different economic incentive, a different economic model. We try to basically cash out at the end of the year. Okay. Uh, you know, you know, our firm and all firms, you know, carry carry some money over from year to year for tax purposes. But the way lawyers get uh, compensated, it's year by year, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so it, there isn't a lot of um, stomach or interest in saying I'm going to do a, I'm going to invest in a five year program uh, for analytics mm -hmm. when half of the shareholders in the firm might be thinking I might not be here five years from now. Mm -hmm. I want my compensation now. I, I want instead of you taking that profit and throwing it into a five-year program to improve the firm as an entity, well, lawyers are jumping ship all the time now. So they're thinking, no, I want mine now. And so uh, Michael Heller, our CEO, I know he's you know very adamant that we aren't going to think like that. But but we're a different firm. A lot of firms aren't like Cozy. You know, Michael's very entrepreneurial. Uh, he thinks ahead. He thinks like a technology guy. And so, but what we but. So that's the first barrier. And see, we're still trying to overcome that barrier in the legal field. The other barrier we have in the legal field is lawyers think in binary terms, lawyers and non-lawyers. I'm a lawyer. I know this stuff. I have the law license. I had to pass the bar. I had to go to law school. You're not a lawyer, so you don't know. Okay. So when lawyers are trying to run businesses and they try to innovate, it's usually just lawyers or people that have worked in law firms that have a seat at the table. And see, what I've done with our CSDS groups, uh, Cyber Solutions Data Strategies, is what I'm trying to build is a multifunctional team, mm -hmm. really I should say a cross-functional team, where we are inviting non-lawyers specifically to the table. In fact, you know, part of my group is kind of a quote-unquote product team or an innovation team. And I specifically want non-legal people to have a seat at that table because I've been practicing law for 25 years. I mean, I know a, lo a lot about the law. I need people to help me that I don't know about. So that's why I try to partner with uh, with other people like Raghu, and that's why I, I took, I think I was the only lawyer taking that <laughs> class. Thank you. Uh, you know, because I'm trying to to go outside of the law to learn about analytics and innovation, which I think is a, a hand in hand and based upon what other non-legal companies are doing and then try to bring it back 
to uh, law. But you know, but and again, what, what class was that? It was the uh, business the analytics. Yes, yeah. and, and so. And it was hard because I don't do a lot of Excel, and these guys do a lot of Excel. And there was a lot of times I had to slow down the video really slow. What's Ragu doing on Excel there? I would What's have to he do clicking? That too. I mean, because we don't, you know, I'm a litigator and trial lawyer. I, I, I don't use Excel, I use words, you know, in Word. So that's one of the challenges that we have is, is, is not only, you know, getting the investment that it takes to say partner with a pen partner with a Drexel, partner with another school and over a five-year program, it's having the foresight to say, listen, we need to bring non-lawyer data scientists. We need to bring non-lawyer product managers. We need to bring in non-lawyer application developers to the firm, make an investment in them. And that's how you have real change and match up with your clients. And that's how you have real growth. And that's what I'm trying to do on a small scale with with uh, my group. So in terms of getting, I mean, so, I mean, how rare is this? I mean, just to give people an idea, because I think maybe we assume like from the pri- like from certain comp- like the standpoint of like the larger companies that they have all these different functions. But yes. in terms of like the legal field, how rare is it to have a data scientist on staff? Like give us well, an very idea. rare. I mean, I think your most progressive firms are doing that. But then you also run into some internal uh, you run into some internal battles as well at law firms because. Lawyers have a tendency to look at IT as being the panacea for everything that's even technology related, including analytics. And it's a different skill set. Data science and IT is just a different skill set. It's you wouldn't. It's like being a lawyer, a tax lawyer, and a PI and a personal injury lawyer. We're both lawyers, but but you wouldn't want your tax lawyer trying your personal injury case, and you wouldn't want your personal injury lawyer doing your taxes. But a lot of law firms still kind of see IT as the panacea for all this, and they put too much on IT's plate, and they get mediocre results. And I mean, if you're going to really be serious about using analytics and about being innovative in a law firm, you have to be in the fast lane. You got to be in the left lane. You have to be able to iterate over and over and over and over again, because and, because you have to experiment, learn, pivot, experiment, learn, pivot, experiment, learn, pivot. And then that's how you get ahead. And so what we have in our group, uh, I think is pretty unique. I've been told by people up at Harvard Law, there's only three firms in the country that have something like what we have. Um, but uh, at the same time, we have to prove it. You know, we have to launch products. We have to develop alternative revenue streams. Because it's, it's, it's not an academic exercise in the long run. It's what can we do to develop revenue and improve our client relationships over the long haul. What's one thing that you would say, like, that if I'm a lawyer and yes. I'm listening to this podcast, like, if I want to just get started and hit the tip of the iceberg here, what's one thing you could say that I could do to kind of have a better understanding of data and start bringing this into my practice? Well, I think, it, you know, it helped me very much to take the business analytics class with Brian uh, Goo and, and over at Wharton. It, it was online. I mean, what I try to do is I read books and I study books that lawyers wouldn't read, but that people who are in the business world who are interested in data science would read. And I learn from them and then I try to extrapolate from what they're doing onto the law to see what might work or did not work. So I study what businesses do outside of the law. And then I, because businesses, our clients, our enterprise clients are five to 10 years ahead of us on all our stuff. So I read Forbes blogs. I read other blogs that are business-related blogs that talk about analytics, and then I try to extrapolate back to how it might Im- impact 
the uh, law and what we could do potentially in the legal profession with it. The other thing I would do is like you have to partner with non-legal expertise. And when I say non-legal, I'm talking even people who've never worked in law firms. I think the key for law firms for for them to innovate, especially with the use of analytics, is you, you bring people who've never worked in a law firm. You bring them to your data because they will see things in your data. They will see things with the way you're doing that you would never even think of thinking because you kind of have a confirmation bias because you're already a, the lawyer. So one of the things that Rob Gill and I are talking about is um, – you know, starting like an innovation lab or something like that to see if the firm would go for it or um, we give certain types of data to the experts and see what they can come up with. That's where you're really going to have true innovation is you kind of get the lawyers out of it and you let the data experts take the first crack at it because they'll come up with things that, that you don't even think about. Plus, there's not a lot of analytics in the law right now. So a lot of data scientists are you know, moving away from Silicon Valley and they're saying, where are the other opportunities? Because Silicon Valley is so crowded. So where are the other opportunities? And I think law is a prime opportunity. Dave, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Raghu, thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Rachel. And thank you, Dave. Sure. You can find all of Knowledge at Wharton's articles, podcasts, and more on our website, which is knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can also find all of our podcasts on your favorite podcasting app. If you like what you hear, please leave us a like, a comment, or a review. It really does help like-minded folks to find the show. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.